He is risen. The Lord is risen indeed. This keystone of our salvation is the most important evidence of His power to save to the uttermost. The Apostle John records the resolve in Jesus' preparation and sacrifice on the cross and the celebration of His glorious resurrection. Because He is delivered from the tomb, we can be certain that the redeemed are delivered from judgment and completely reconciled to God. That reconciliation includes the promise of eternal life. Jesus said, because I live, you also will live. John composed his gospel to provide reasons of saving faith, proclaiming that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and offers the gift of salvation. He declares these things are written that you may believe. All right, well, good morning, church. And we're going to be in John chapter 20 this morning. If you wanna flip in your Bibles over there, we're gonna be stepping into Sunday morning, what has come to be called Easter Sunday. And, um, you know, we're gonna see the evidences of what is happening that day. And, you know, my wife and I have recently stepped into what I like to recall or like to call being parent detectives. We're not just parents anymore. We're, all, we're parents, but we're also detectives. You see, um, for, for a little while, we, um, I have two daughters who are now four and, and seven. And for a little while, they, it was easy to tell who did it because only one possible answer was there. Now that they're both old enough to be, to be the one who did it, we've got to figure out what, what exactly has happened. Um, in fact, not too long ago, we were downstairs. We live in like a two-story townhouse. And my wife and I were downstairs. The girls were playing upstairs. And we heard that noise that every parent hears on a regular basis. <laughs> but the boom, and you wonder what just happened. You always wait first. You're like, okay, you wait for crying, you wait for screaming, you wait for like yelling at each other or whatever it is that's happened. And, and that, that time it was just quiet. And so I was like, all right, well, my wife and I walked upstairs and, and being met by, as we hit the top of the stairs, we get met by the, the same answer. It wasn't me. <clears throat> Of course, they also claimed to not know what made the, stone, what made the sound. <laughs> it wasn't me, and yet they know something has happened, but we, they wouldn't tell us what it was, and so we've got to kind of look around and, and, be, and put on our, our detective hats and try to figure out what exactly is going on. You know, what's out of place? You know, is the, uh, is the TV okay? That's, that's always on my list. Is the TV okay? TV was all right, all right? And so we're looking around, what could have made this noise? And eventually my wife notices that one of the pictures that hangs in our hallway was on the floor in the hallway. Well, girls, who knocked over the picture? I didn't touch it. It wasn't me. Well, girls, pictures don't jump off the walls onto the floor by themselves, even though that might happen in cartoons, not in real life. So obviously something happened. And with our detective hats on, we have to deduce what has, has conspired between all of this, uh, this situation here. And we come to find out in that instance that one of our daughters, I won't say which one, was doing cartwheels down the hallway apparently not straight enough to miss the walls, hit one of the walls, picture came falling down to the floor. Pretty sure, even after realizing what all happened and who did it, the answer was still, I didn't touch it. Because technically, she only touched the wall <laughs> and not the picture. So in her world, she still, she still hadn't touched it. But, but listen, that's, that's kind of what we see ourselves in um, this morning. As we look at the evidence of um, what has happened, what has transpired between the crucifixion and now when we have our first eyewitnesses step onto the scene of what we come to know as an empty tomb. 
And even though we aren't there to see it ourselves, we get to see through the eyes of these eyewitnesses thanks to the gospels being preserved by God for us to be able to look back and read and see what happened. See, our main idea for this morning that I want you to to keep a hold of as we look through their eyes and see what they believed and the evidence and all that as we go through, we're gonna borrow a a statement from Jesus that's gonna be covered in a future week. In which he said to um, one of his disciples, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. See, because none of us got to see with our own eyes the evidence that these disciples are about to see for themselves, and yet we must believe without having seen. And I think, hopefully, we'll come to the point of agreement at the end of this morning that the evidence points very clearly to a resurrected Jesus we're gonna look at the evidence. We're gonna look at their responses to the evidence. And then along the way, we're going to, um, to argue against four other opposing theories that try to explain the evidence away, that try to explain it as just a natural occurrence and, and give some other reason besides a supernatural thing happening here. Because you see, if the resurrection is true, as we believe it to be, we all have to respond to that evidence. And if it weren't true, Paul lays out very clearly in 1 Corinthians that our faith, rightfully so, should fall apart, the faith that we have in Jesus. Because if he has not been resurrected, we have no hope of resurrection. He has not truly paid for our sins. We are still in our sins. And in fact, we've actually lied about God because we've claimed Jesus is one with God. And so let's take a look at this evidence here this morning the eyewitness accounts that we have access to. We're gonna look at John chapter 20, verses one through 18, and we're gonna take it step by step, first looking at the first two verses. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So our first piece of evidence here that actually I thought after we had already made the handout <laughs> would actually better be termed an opened tomb because she assumes that it's empty. For the best we can tell, she gets close to the tomb but doesn't actually look in. In fact, she, even if she did look in, she may not have been able to see anything because it was so early, it was still dark. But she gets close enough to see that the stone has been rolled away and she freaks out. Just like you would freak out if you walked into a, uh, a cemetery expecting to visit the gravesite of a loved one and you see that a hole has been dug exactly where their grave is. You would naturally assume someone's taken the body just by seeing the hole dug to begin with. Mary approaches the tomb. She sees this stone has been rolled away and she assumes someone has taken the body of Jesus. Like sort of ironically, she assumes the same thing that the Sanhedrin tries to guard against and expects the disciples to steal the body of Jesus. Hence, the whole guarding of the tomb to begin with. I think it's possible that she might have even made it close enough to not only see the tomb rolled away, but to see some of the security steps that had been taken with that stone. If you are here a few weeks ago when, uh, when Pastor Russell went over that, that stone and just how sealed and secured it was, you know it's not just a simple you know, piece of wax with, a, um, with an embossing on it and don't touch. No, it was actually sealed. It was, 
It was secured in the way that they could make it as secure as possible, and yet this stone has been rolled away. So naturally, she runs to the disciples. She runs and she tells them, we don't know what happened. What we know, what we assume to know is that they have taken the body of Jesus, and we don't know where they have placed it. You see, one of the opposing theories is that the disciples were grabbing onto some traditions and other stories that had, had been put forth before about some kind of risen Messiah figure, and they just adopted that and made it into a lie about Jesus to perpetuate this, this continue, to continue this movement and perpetuate this lie for their own power and good themselves. And then it's all just made up. Now, this theory falls on its face pretty quickly and is very much lacking in evidence. Just look at the, uh, at the narrative here to begin with. It doesn't read like you would expect it to read if people were making up this story for their own good. If I were to be, if I was in those disciples' shoes and, this, and it were true that it was all a lie, all made up, there's no way I would have written this story like this. I would have written something to the effect of, and we as disciples, having known fully what Jesus was going to do, we gathered together in a home together, praying and anxiously awaiting his resurrection. And on Easter Sunday morning, we, we gathered together our arms like a football team and walked in unison towards this tomb, knowing what we would find, this risen Savior. And yet, the picture we get from Scripture, the real story of what really happened, is that these disciples scattered and ran to their homes just like the disciples of any other supposed Messiah would have done and did do. That at the deadly demise of their Messiah that they were hoping was going to usher in this promised kingdom, when he died, they scatter. They go to their homes, hopeless, knowing it's all over, mourning and getting ready to go about their lives. That's a clearer picture of what we see than what would back up some story about a lie that they put together. On top of that, even though it's not in our passage, just real quickly, I think the, the biggest evidence against that theory is that these disciples took that supposed lie to the death. Who dies for that lie? At some point, being tortured, they would have confessed it was all made up. It wasn't a lie. And there's our first eyewitness account of an empty tomb, but we go on to a second eyewitness account. In fact, a double eyewitness account because these two disciples that she has run to and told about this now run to the tomb. And we see in verses three through 10, an empty tomb with burial cloths still remaining. Verse three, so Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. 
They show up on the scene, they see this evidence and they, and they go back to their homes. Before we dig into arguably the more important part of this, my, one of my favorite parts and the part that I was actually looking forward to being able to share with you, in, with you this morning in this passage, once I found out I had this passage, is what I believe to be the running joke amongst the disciples from that day forward. We've all have family jokes that are running jokes that we, uh, that we tell in our families. I think we get an insight into this, a real story written by real people about real events that happen. And we have the apostle John, this beloved disciple, mentioning three times that he beat Peter to the tomb. Three times, y'all. Look back at it. Verse four, reach the tomb first. Verse five, and then Simon Peter came following him. Verse eight, then the other disciple, by the way, who had reached the tomb first, also went in. I can't think of any other reason <laughs> why you would want to mention it three times. It doesn't actually add to the narrative, but mentioning it once, the fact that he got there and then Peter got there and they saw different things. I mean, three times, y'all. I think John, as he's writing this in his old age, is probably even maybe laughing to himself as he puts this in here, uh, going, ha ha, one more time, not knowing full well that for thousands of years later, we get to read of his, his race that he won as well. Some of y'all may have uh, parents or grandparents that tell of those glory days back in the day. You know, or some of y'all might share stories around Thanksgiving or Christmas that you kind of hold over each other's heads, lovingly, of course, of things that have transpired. There's one in our family I was gonna share with you that um, happened back in Christmas a long time ago, but I bring it up every Christmas ever since. My brother's in, in his 30s now and I still hold this over his head every Christmas morning. You see, when he was little, he was unwrapping a present and he, and he found something unexpected. Raise your hand if you've ever packed a Christmas present inside of a box that was not labeled for what was inside. Some of you torturous people, yes. You jerks, all right? My, my brother, this, he was, I don't forget exactly how old he was, but he unwraps his present. My mom was one of those people that would never let a box go only used one time, but as many times as possible so it fell apart. And she unra he unwrapped this present and starts burst, he's bursting into tears, just wailing. I don't want a crock pot. I don't want a crock pot. I don't want a crock pot. Now me as the older brother, sitting in the same room, of course, goes, I'll take it because I already knew. She'd already gotten me with that one before, right? And so I already knew there was something else in there. But every year, without fail, whenever we're opening up Christmas presents, and other times just during the year, just for fun, I'll just go, I don't want a crock pot. I don't want a crock pot. Just to mock him, because that's what brothers do, right? In fact, I asked him, I said, hey, uh, my brother's name is Sean. I said, hey, Sean, you know, how would you feel about me sharing this story with 1,400 of my closest friends on Sunday? And he offered to meet you on Main Street, sign your crockpots for you, just in case you wanted that kind of memento. All right, that's, that's not true. He actually lives in Orlando, so he's not here. But, um, but this, I think that is actually what is, is something similar to what's happening here. And it speaks just one more layer of the fact that this is a real story written by a real person about real events. So let's take a look at this evidence of what they see here as Peter and John get here. You see, John, as we've said, makes it there first. And he sees that there are linen cloths lying there, but he doesn't go in. Simon Peter, at least in my mind, gives a little shoulder shove to John on the way in and steps into the tomb to look a little bit closer. It just sounds like something Peter would do. And then John responds and steps in and sees. He looks in and he believes. 
What are they looking at? What is this belief? You see, one saw and believed, but what is this evidence that he's looking at? You see, he, he steps in and he sees linen cloths lying there and in two piles, right? One where the body was and one that was, would have been covering the, the head that is, is lying separately. Which just on, on a side note for a second, um, those who hold up the, the shroud of Turin as a actual burial cloth of Jesus run into a lot of trouble when we read this verse right here. Because the Shroud of Turin is supposedly a single full body wrap of the body of Jesus with like blood stains that you, you can supposedly see his face and, uh, and the, the, the wounds and, and that kind of thing. And yet, in our passage here today, we see that there's separate head cloth and body cloths. So that's just, that's just bonus. But when they're looking at these, um, at these cloths here, think with John. Right, John's mind is probably swirling. It's flying. He's thinking about what in the world's happened, thinking about what Jesus said, thinking about all these things. And he looks at these cloths and I think he thought something to the effect of if they stole his body, why did they unwrap it first? Who does that? That's disgusting. If you're gonna steal a body out of a tomb and you're trying to do it quickly probably on top of that, you go in, you take the body fully clothed and you walk out with it. You don't unwrap it and then carry what's left out of the tomb. Does that make any sense at all? What's going through John's mind in this moment, I think, is he's seeing this and he's going, well, the body's gone, but it's, how? How is it gone? And I think in his mind also, he's connecting it to something he's heard Jesus and he recalls in his mind about how he's going to be raised and he sees and he believes. Maybe not for full saving faith. We don't know exactly when that happened in his life, but he at least believes that this resurrection has occurred because it looks like this body has somehow just supernaturally been removed from the cloths that are lying there. And Interestingly enough, it aligns with at least one other occurrence that we see in his appearances that somehow this new body of Jesus, this new Jesus post-resurrection enters into a room with all the doors and windows locked just like that. Somehow there's, a, there's an elevated um, level of, of opportunity here for this resurrected Jesus. And so they're looking and they see these cloths lying there. You see, there's another um, theory that, would, that is called the swoon theory that would try to explain how in the world this, this Jesus is, was crucified and is now kind of wandering around later on, right? Still alive. Well, the swoon theory says that he was almost dead. He was mostly dead, but he wasn't actually dead. That somehow the professional murderers crucified him, stabbed him for good measure, to, to verify that he was dead, took him down. He was then wrapped in the burial cloth and 75 pounds of spices, placed in a tomb, which was then sealed and guarded. And he just healed really quickly, y'all. He was just mostly dead and now he's recovered. And a couple of days later, he's just fine with some scars left over. It's one of the most ridiculous theories that I've come across. Why even try to put this theory forth? But it's one that's been put forth and argued that he wasn't actually dead because at some point you have to deal with the evidence and explain the evidence. And serious scholars and critics of history, including biblical history, would agree to much of the evidence. 
Then it becomes, how do you explain that evidence? Well, John sees and believes. And yet then he, he admits that neither one fully understood. In verse nine, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. They were still figuring this out. And then we move on to this next piece of evidence. You see Mary's back at the tomb. In verse 11, we don't know how, when, why, we just know that that's the next thing that, that he says here, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And she, she has an angelic encounter. Notice here what it says in verses 11 through 13. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she, sto- as she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. She's still struggling with this loss, processing it. Now, some of you who have read the different gospels may wonder, okay, well, how does this match with some of the other gospels? How does it harmonize together? I'm not gonna get into that this morning. I'm gonna cover that in our Beyond the Notes this week. And so if that's a question you have or something that interests you, uh, we'll spend a little bit of time talking through that this week. But we see here, um, we are gonna cover cover this morning is that John mentions it because it's worth mentioning it, but then he moves right beyond it. He says, having said this, and so in the remainder of our verses here, verses 14 through 18, we see an encounter with the risen Messiah, the much more important encounter compared to the angelic encounter. Verse 14, having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Who are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, and she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. And we don't know exactly why you know, Mary didn't recognize it was Jesus. It could be a, a simple natural explanation that, that she's in this weeping and mourning and all of a sudden she kind of senses a presence nearby and, and she turns and she kind of just sees a figure, right? And she supposes he's the gardener. And it's not until he says her name that it clicks for her. The whole, whom are you seeking is, uh, is just intertwined through this whole exchange here. Who is it that you come here to, to see? It, it can be seen as just as humor right off the bat. I mean, think about it. Jesus shows up and says, hey, who are you looking for? And she turns to him thinking he's the gardener and says, where'd you put him? To the one she's looking for. But then he says her name, Mary. And it clicks for her. And for me, it's reminiscent of John chapter 10. You know, Ryan read part of that this morning, but if I was to give you homework today, I would say go and read John chapter 10 this afternoon in which he's talking about the shepherd and the sheep. And part of what Jesus says there is that the shepherd has such a connection with the sheep that, they, that the sheep hear his voice and they follow him, but that the shepherd calls his sheep by name and they know him. He goes on to say that in that same part where he's explaining that, potentially there for us to find it when we're looking at this right here, that he has full control over his life to lay it down or to take it back up again as the good shepherd. 
Her response is like the, like the response of a child. When she realizes it's, it's Jesus and it all clicks in her mind, she, she runs over to him and grabs onto him, apparently, because he says, stop it. <laughs> it's, it's reminiscent of, uh, of what kids do like when, they're, you know, when parents come home from a long day of work or even sometimes, at least in, in our house, my wife will be gone for about 10 minutes and my little one acts like it's been months that she's been missing. She'll go to the store and come back and it's like, ah! crying this whole time and she runs up and sometimes my wife's got something to do and she's like listen I, yes I love you thank you sweetheart move I have groceries <laughs> and a similar things happening right here with Jesus and Mary Mary is grabbing onto him like a child not wanting to let go because the one whom she loved the one whom she thought she lost is now standing in front of her risen she says teacher and grabs onto him Jesus does not rebuke her for it he simply says, you don't need to hold on to me like that. I'm not done. The crucifixion has happened. The resurrection has happened. Now proving who he is and who he said he was. Sins have been paid for and yet he still is in the process of ascending up to the Father. And she, he needs her to let go and go and tell the disciples of what's going on. And you get to this last part of the whom she is seeking and her words herself. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. The one whom she was seeking, the one whom she thought whose body had been taken, the one whom she thought had died and it was all over and she was so confused about what all was going on, but now she has seen the Lord. It's a big piece of evidence you gotta deal with if you're gonna say it's not a risen savior. The appearances you have to deal with it. And there's one, there's one theory that's been put forth that's called the hallucination theory. That, oh, well, you see, they didn't really see Jesus. They just thought they saw Jesus. And maybe in this one account, maybe you have some traction there. That if it was, this was the only appearance of Jesus, that he appears to Mary mourning in front of the tomb. And in her mourning and grief, she turns and thinks she sees this man whom has died the one whom she was seeking. Maybe you could get away with saying, well, that's, that was just a hallucination. That's not really true. It gets a little bit harder. In fact, I would argue impossible when you think about the fact that over the next 40 days, 15 appearances at least, to over 500 people, that this risen Jesus appears, it gets really hard to say this is one mass hallucination on a scale that's never even come close to in the history of mankind. But you gotta explain it. Another theory that's been put forth is um, referred to as a substitute theory. In other words, it wasn't really Jesus on the cross, a substitute was crucified on the cross. That's how Jesus, I guess with some faked um, uh, wounds, was then walking around for those other days. That it wasn't really him who died on the cross. In fact, this is the, the, the teaching of, of Islam in the Quran. Listen to what, it, what the Quran says in Surah 4, 157. But they did not kill him nor crucify him, but so it was made to appear to them. And those who differ therein are full of doubts with no knowledge, but only conjecture to follow. For certain, they did not kill as a possible explanation, because even the Quran has to deal with the appearances of the risen Jesus. This theory written 
I mean, hundreds of years later, really has no evidence for it whatsoever. And you gotta at least pair it up with an empty tomb and a stealing of the body because if it wasn't Jesus who was crucified, you just go find that body who was placed in that tomb and find your evidence right there that it wasn't Jesus. And then you have to say for some other reason, he's, after he's supposedly ascended, he just disappears. Not to be seen or heard from again amongst his disciples. You see, you can put forth other theories trying to give a naturalistic explanation when you're bound and determined to put aside the supernatural as an explanation. That if it can't be God, it can't be that Jesus was 100% man, 100% God, on the third day rose again to life, then you've gotta come up with some other explanation. And yet I would argue before you today that based on even just the evidence we looked at this morning, which is just a piece of the evidence, that even the most logical explanation is that the resurrection is true. That every other theory fails. And the only reason you would dig down to try to come up with some other theory is because you are bound and determined for there to be a natural explanation. You see, the mental is one aspect of coming to Christ, but the heart is the other aspect. And we can explain those mental Barriers. We can, we can answer questions and apologetics can be great for bolstering our faith and I hope yours has been this morning. It can also be great in tearing down some of those, uh, those mental barriers and, and things people hold up as I'm not gonna turn to Jesus because of this and we can explain some of those things. But saving faith is still a matter of the heart. That we can explain the head knowledge but to believe in what Jesus did on the cross, to admit that I'm a sinner, and I need to pay for my own sins. And the only possible way for me not to have to pay for my sins and spend eternity separated from God in a real place called hell is by trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation. That according to the scriptures, both predicted and promised by Jesus and then backed up by the evidence that he died, was buried, and rose again, proving that he had the power over sin and death. And if you came into this place this morning not knowing where you stood on that, or maybe holding up some of these theories that we talked about this morning, I'd love to have a, a further conversation with you if you'd like to. You can, uh, you can email me, you can call. I'll be available um, after service if you still have more questions. I'll, but my, my challenge for you is how are you going to respond to this evidence? And will you open up to the possibility that the Bible narrative is not distorted, is not lies, but it's actually 100% true. And for those of you who have already made it that far, you're already trusting in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I do hope, as I, as I often see and when we're going over apologetic type stuff, that it is a bolster for our faith. That we, our faith is in the unseen and yet it's also grounded in the confirmed. Grounded in verified truth. When God spoke to the Israelites over and over again in the Old Testament, you see him mentioning, I have done this, and I have done this, and I have done this. I am the God who has done all of these things. You know who I am. Trust in me moving forward. Hopefully, being able to think biblically about this evidence well is, is not only a bolster to your faith, but even an encouragement and, a, and a, a further equipping of you to be able to go out into this world and share it with courage. 
that by thinking biblically, we can then go out and live missionally in this world with all of those around us. You may have the opportunity to share this with someone this week. Will you stand on the truth courageously? Will you be willing to face a little bit of pain for Jesus? Maybe it's just a little bit of discomfort and having a conversation. Maybe it's outright persecution as a result. I don't know where your week will take you this week, but my hope and my prayer for you this morning is that you are prepared and ready to walk out into this world, putting on the armor of God to live for him and bring him glory. And understanding and working through the evidence can help with that. Like I said, that's my hope and my prayer for you this morning that we can walk out and that there will be people across this city as, the, as we work through the remainder of this year that are coming to faith in Christ because those of us in this church are involved in the work of Christ, reaching out to those who are around us because if you are a believer in Christ and you, and you have actually repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus as Lord and Savior, you have the knowledge you need to share with someone else. And we can help come alongside you as a church and help equip you better to be able to go out and share that. But you have the truth that you need. You are carrying the gospel of Jesus.